The second reading this morning is uh, Philippians chapter 2. I will read verses 1 through 15. Hear the word of God. If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father God, we uh, ask that you be present here by the power of your spirit. Uh, accomplish in us what we cannot uh, do by ourselves. Help us uh, where we need uh, help this morning. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So you haven't really figured out this uh, Sunday morning schedule thing yet. Uh, you know, we're, we're getting there. We're get, it's not your fault, Bruno. We're like wandering in here, you know, 10 minutes late, 15 minutes late. Uh, so I don't know. We're going to work it out. Uh, Sunday school teachers, you may have to give instructions to your students that they need to chop, chop, get to the sanctuary or whatever. But it's all good. Uh, we're slowly, we're slowly uh, working this thing out. I hope you're meeting some new people. Okay, uh, there should be some cross fertilization uh, between the two, uh, between the two services going on here. Um, don't be afraid to speak to people who don't speak your language, okay? Both ways, just speak, okay? And slowly we will get to know each other a little bit better um, as we keep pressing forward. So back in January, I guess it was the first Sunday of January, I started uh, this sermon series through the book of Numbers, and now we are starting to wind down toward the end of this book. The book of Numbers tells the story of the Israelites between the book of Exodus, which records their escape from Egypt, uh, and the book of Joshua, which tells about their entry into the promised land. 
The book of Numbers is the story of the children of Israel rescued and redeemed by God out of slavery during their wilderness journey on the way but not yet settled in the land that God is giving to them. In many ways, the book of Numbers is about us, the church. We've been rescued and redeemed by Jesus, but we are not yet at home with Jesus in our final destination in the city that is going to be called New Jerusalem, which will be on the new earth where we're going to live forever in the presence of God. The book of Numbers shows how God provides for his people in a barren wilderness. He brings manna out of heaven. He brings water out of rocks. It shows how God takes a ragtag group of slaves and begins to shape them and organize them into a unified nation, into a nation with its own identity and law and unique system of worship. The religion that was given to the Israelites at Mount Sinai, and by the way, you need to keep in mind that biblical religion is not a human invention, but is a revelation from God himself. <coughs> All right, you're not supposed to cough on the first page of the sermon. There's only 27 more pages. <laughs> this religion is uh, a revelation from God, and it's the first of its kind on the planet. Instead of there being a whole collection of gods who compete and fight with each other, there's only one God. And this God is actually not part of the universe. He's not the sky or the sun or the earth or a river. And for this reason, there can be no image or statues or idols or pictures representing God. That's a first. It must have seemed very strange to the Israelites. You recall that when Moses was up on Mount Sinai getting the law from God, he was gone for 40 days up there on top of the mountain. And during that time, the Israelites, under the direction of Moses' brother Aaron, make for themselves a golden calf to worship. That's natural. That's what they were used to doing. That's what everybody did. But God was doing something new with these people, and through these chosen people, God was doing something new with all of the people on the planet. God was revealing himself in a fuller way than he had ever been revealed before. Polytheism, the belief in many gods, and idolatry are natural responses to our innate sense that our lives are in the hands of a power that's far beyond us. In a positive way, we can view polytheism and idolatry as honorable but misguided human attempts to worship the divine, since the need for worship is built into every human heart. That may have been what was going on with the golden calf in Exodus 31 and 32. In a negative way, however, we can see polytheism and idolatry as selfish human attempts to exploit or to manipulate the divine for our own benefit. Like Balaam offering seven sacrifices on seven altars 
to seven gods. He was covering all the bases so that he could curse the Israelites so that he could make a whole lot of money. We met that story back in Numbers 23 and 24. With the Israelites, God is doing something new by revealing himself more fully than he has ever revealed himself since the Garden of Eden. And he does this in three ways. Number one, God gives his written law, which covers both civil and religious life. In the United States, we separate church and state, and that's a good thing. But the law of Moses unifies church and state. The law of Moses deals with property law, family law, criminal law, all the kinds of things that are covered by the laws of the state of Pennsylvania. But the law of Moses also deals with religion. It defines how worship is to happen, and it defines who can do what in the course of worship. So the first way that God reveals himself more fully to the Israelites is through his written law. The second way God reveals himself more fully to the Israelites is through his verbal commands to Moses. The law of Moses, the law that was received at Mount Sinai, doesn't cover every situation. Sometimes Moses would have a question about what to do, and so he would ask God, and God would answer him directly. Keep in mind that Moses was the greatest of all of the prophets. No prophet ever communicated so directly with God as Moses did. It won't be until Jesus comes along that we again have a human on the planet who had such a direct pipeline to God himself. And the third way God reveals himself more fully to the Israelites is through his providence, through his guidance of their journey in the wilderness. God protected these people from every danger. God provided them with everything that they needed. And God also taught them important lessons. When they obeyed, they were blessed. When they complained or disobeyed, they suffered chastisement. These experiences taught the Israelites, first, that God is faithful and trustworthy, but it also taught the Israelites that they needed to be faithful and trustworthy in response. God has a certain way. He wants things done. And things work out better when we do them that way. That's a very important lesson. During the 40 years in the wilderness, God was shaping and forming for himself a special people. They are going to be the people who will be a light to the world, and one day the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ, would be born among these people. God was blessing the Israelites for sure, but he was also blessing the whole world. And to guard that blessing for the whole world, God needed to guard this little nation that he had chosen to be an incubator for all of those blessings. All of these lessons apply to us, the Church of Jesus Christ, because God is blessing the whole world through us. We have been given the blessing of God's fullest revelation. We have the law and the prophets and the gospel. God blesses his church and he providentially guards his church. Even the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. But this blessing isn't for us alone. It is for the whole world and it is for the glory of God. As we have been working our way through the book of Numbers, we have 
read uh, historical accounts, historical vignettes, like the story of the spies going into the land to see the lay of the land in chapter 13, like the story of the bronze snake in chapter 21. But sandwiched between these historical vignettes are fuller explanations of the law that was first presented in the book of Exodus. For example, Numbers chapter 30, which talks about the special case of the vows of women. Numbers chapter 30 is in fact a fuller explanation of the third and the ninth commandment, which we met in Exodus chapter 20. This week, in Numbers chapter 32, we have the final historical vignette from the book of Numbers. At this point, there's really nothing left to do but to cross the Jordan River and to start conquering the land of Canaan by marching around the walls of Jericho first. That's a story that we'll meet in Joshua chapter 2. The following chapters of the book of Numbers, which we'll get to uh, between now and Reformation uh, Sunday, they review, uh, first of all, where Israel has traveled. Uh, They review the boundaries that God sets to this new state. They set up a system of cities for the Levites to live in and uh, a cities of refuge where people who are guilty of manslaughter can run to be safe. And then there's a coda stuck on the end of the book uh, which talks about the land that uh, was given to the daughters of Zelophehad. You remember that story from Numbers chapter 27. So let's take a look at Numbers chapter 32. We're still on the eastern shore of the Jordan River. We are in land that is today part of the kingdom of Jordan. The Israelites are on the eastern side of the Jordan River, even though that's the long way to get to Canaan from Egypt. Because when they tried to enter Canaan the short way from the south up through the Negev Desert, they ran into trouble. And so they crossed over the Jordan Rift Valley to the far side because it was less populated and because it had a good north-south road called the King's Highway. And as the Israelites are traveling north on that road, they ask King Sion of the Amorites to let them pass through. They promise not to cause any trouble. They promise not to go into their fields or into their vineyards or even to drink water from their wells. But King Sion refuses and he sends an army out to attack them. And God then delivers that army into the hands of the Israelites. And the Israelites not only kill the army, but they also take all of the land of the Ammonites. Still wanting to travel farther north, Moses then sends word to King Og of Bashan, and he says the same thing, we just want to pass through, we won't cause any trouble. But King Og sends his army out, and again the Lord delivers that army into the hands of the Israelites, and the Israelites then occupy that territory. Keep in mind that the Israelites had no intention of taking these lands or these cities, they're not part of the promised land. And then the Moabites and the Midianites form an alliance to destroy Israel. And they hire Balaam, the guy with the talking donkey. And that doesn't work out for them either. And so the result is that Israel, on their way to the promised land, finds themselves in possession of a pretty large territory on the wrong side of the river. 
And while they're in this territory, waiting for the signal to cross over into the promised land, leaders of two of the tribes, the Reubenites and the Gadites, they go to Moses and they say, do you mind if we just stay here? I know we were all heading to Canaan, but we have a lot of cattle and the pasture is really good here for our animals. So if you don't mind, how about we settle here and you ten tribes go on into Israel ahead of us. And Moses just about loses his mind. And he lets loose with the longest and the most blistering speech he gives in all of the book of Numbers. Oh, you're going to settle here and let your brothers cross the river and fight the fight. Do you think they're going to want to go into battle without you to help? If you walk out on us now, if they won't, if you won't cross the river with us, we're not going to cross either. And we're not going to take the land that God has given to us. You are doing the exact same thing that your fathers did when I sent spies into the land. And you know how angry God got then. Because of that, no one over the age of 20 was even allowed to live. Only Joshua and Caleb. And if you do it again, God's going to make it even worse this time. You sinful people. You're going to destroy everybody. Big reaction. From old Moses at the end of his life. Now fortunately, the leaders of the Reubenites and the Gadites adjust their plans and they respond in a diplomatic way. They promise that yes, their men will join the rest of the Israelites as they cross over into, into Canaan. Yes, they will take part in the battles that lie ahead. And they won't settle back into their territory on the east side of the Jordan until Canaan is conquered. And so they strike a deal with Moses. The men will enter Canaan and fight while the women and children remain behind. And once all of the fighting is done, the men will rejoin their families. So what's going on here? And why is this story recorded for us? Remember that the New Testament tells us that these things happened and were recorded for our instruction. The tribe of Reuben and the tribe of Gad have set their sight on good pasture land for their animals on the east side of the Jordan River, outside of the Promised Land. At the moment, they're all camped there in this territory, this territory that has come under their control because of battles that have already been won. And those battles were won by the whole nation of Israel who fought together. It wasn't Reuben or Gad who conquered those territories. In fact, it was all 12 tribes of Israel working together under God's leadership. And when they first came to Moses and said, hey, you guys go on ahead and conquer Canaan. We'll just stay here and graze our cattle on this good land that we've already conquered. They threatened to fracture the coalition that had made that conquest possible in the first place. They got what they wanted, but then they no longer wanted to be part of the team. And they were ready to bail out, which was incredibly selfish on their part. Once they had benefited from being part of this federation of 12 tribes, once they had benefited, they then wanted to pull out so that they wouldn't have to pay the price of helping the other members in the federation. But here's the deal. 
If we're going to be part of the people of God, there will be times when we receive help. And there will be times when we give help. And all of us, if we're going to be part of the people of God, need to be ready to receive sometimes and to give sometimes. That's just how it works. So let me talk about Philippians chapter 2. We read, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. This is actually a very sophisticated command coming from the Apostle Paul. Apostle Paul would have founded that church at Philippi and he's sending instruction back to the church. And this instruction is actually very sophisticated. <clears throat> Notice that the command is not about what to do, but about why to do it. Not about what to do, but about why. It's about motivations. Do nothing from selfish ambition or from conceit. Now, some things seem clearly motivated by conceit or selfish ambition, like posting selfies of yourself on Instagram. Ah, but we must not even be careful to, but we must be careful to not even judge in that case. Because even what seems inherently selfish might be selfless. What if you were posting selfies on Instagram to raise money to dig wells in Africa, for example? What if you were posting selfies on Instagram to bring people to church? It's not actually what we do, but it's why we do it that counts, okay? Something that can look selfish might actually be for other people. It's possible. And let's think about the other side. What about being a pastor or a Sunday school teacher or a church kitchen worker? Surely people who work for the church are always selfless and devoid of conceit or ambition. Not. Maybe you don't, but I know plenty of ambitious pastors. Pastors for whom their personal success is a drug which drives their work. Pastors addicted to the praise of their people like vampires are addicted to the blood of the living. These pastors exist. Let's not be naive. It is possible to work in the church and still be guilty of selfish ambition and conceit. Why do you, why do you think Paul wrote this command to the Philippians? Remember Morrison's First law of biblical interpretation. When the Bible says don't, it's because a bunch of us do. And when the Bible says do, it's because a bunch of us don't. The command that Paul gives is not about what we do, but about why we do it. We need to do what we do with the right motivations. 
And so Paul is correcting the church there at Philippi in this regard. This command is also about how we think of ourselves relative to other people. In humility, consider others more significant than yourself. This command also recognizes that our motivations can be mixed, can be complicated. Look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. In other words, Paul sees that it is possible to look both to the interest of other people and to attend to your own self-interest at the same time. Paul isn't saying that we shouldn't take care of ourselves or that we should not look out for our self-interest. What he's saying is that we should not think that we are the only ones who matter and that we should not think that we are better than others. Paul isn't saying that we shouldn't think about ourselves, but he's saying that we should not think about ourselves too much or too, or too highly. And why is that? Why should we not look out for number one? Why does it not make sense to put ourselves ahead of others? I think it has something to do with the interconnected nature of the people of God, whether they are the nation of Israel or the church of Jesus Christ. When we have a relationship with God, we, are, we have at the same time a relationship with the people of God. Okay? When we have a relationship with God, we have a relationship with the people of God. There are no independent Christians. To be a follower of Christ is to be connected organically with other believers. People who say, I believe in Jesus, but I don't believe in organized religion, just aren't telling the truth. Because Jesus created an organized religion. It's called the church. There is a very misguided idea out there that I hear expressed periodically on social media. The idea that I can love Jesus, but not be so crazy about his followers. You know, because Jesus is perfect, and his followers, well, they're a bunch of jerks. And because I don't like jerks, but I only like perfect people, that proves that I'm not a jerk. I hear this sentiment regularly expressed on social media, and it's seriously misguided. Here's the deal. The church is the body of Christ. The church is holy. Jesus made it holy. And at the same time, the church is made up of a bunch of jerks. The church is not a collection or a gathering of all of the holy people, all of the non-jerky people. The church is an organic, interconnected body of sinners who have been redeemed by the work of Christ. They are messed up people. And yet, they are together the perfect body of Christ. And you can't say that you love God if you don't love the people of God. And I mean the jerky people of God. Paul talks about the church as the body of Christ and he points out that it has a lot of different parts and that none of those parts can claim to be more important. He writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker 
are indispensable. So there should be no division in the body, but its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers. If one part is honored, every part rejoices. The body of Christ only works when all of the parts are present. The body of Christ is not a random assembly of God followers, like people showing up at a theater to attend a concert. The church is not a concert. The church is a united and organically integrated body. It's not a random assemblage. We are the temple of God. We're not a pile of bricks. We are the body of Christ. We're not a basket full of body parts. When Reuben and Gad think that they can remove themselves from the nation of Israel once they've reaped the benefits of the conquest, leaving the other ten tribes to fend for themselves in Canaan, they not only act selfishly, They dishonor their brothers, but they also fail to grasp what it means to be part of Israel. As part of the people of God, we celebrate when any other part of the body prospers. And we suffer when any other part of the nation is in trouble. We are inseparably linked to one another. We are individually united to one another. If we are united to Christ, we are also united to Christians. If we are one of the tribes of Israel, we cannot just walk off and do our own thing when we think it's in our self-interest. I believe that everybody longs to be part of something larger than themselves. Many are attracted to the church because it is a place to belong, but to be part of something larger than ourselves requires that we not be focused on ourselves. Central to the Christian life is humility, and not just humility with God, but also humility with one another. To be a Christian is to regard our brothers and sisters as more significant than ourselves. It's a tough assignment because it is not natural for us to think that way. And yet that is the life that we are called to live. Central to the Christian life is an organic unity with the whole body of Christ. The church is not a random collection of people showing up on a given Sunday. It's a group of people who are committed to one another, who are connected to one another, who feel for one another, who support one another. In the church, when one of our people prospers, we all celebrate. There's no place for envy in the body of Christ. In the church, when one of our people suffer, all of us feel that pain. There is no place for insensitivity or selfishness in the body of Christ. We are called to work for the well-being of the whole body. We are called to sacrifice for the whole body. And here's the curious thing. When we give up our desire to be in first place, when we think of others as more significant than ourselves, when we stop acting independently, it actually turns out best for us. Not only are we following God's command, we actually are doing what's in our own self-interest. No one is ever happy because they've followed their selfishness. 
And for those who are bound to the church by promoting the well-being of other people, they actually make their own lives better. That's what's counterintuitive about the Christian life. The more I give up, the richer I am. When I sit at the foot of the table, I'm invited to sit at the head of the table. When I think about others more than myself, my own life is improved. I don't know how it happens, but I know that it happens. No one ever became happier by becoming more selfish. And no one was ever dissatisfied with life when they became humble or selfless. Many years ago, my wife and I were taking a long-distance bicycle trip, and my bicycle uh, broke down, and I mean it really broke down. And there was a man who saw my trouble, and he helped us out, helped me out, and like in a really big way. Um, and later, as we had kind of settled in with them that evening, he said to me that he had been having a terrible day at work. He was having huge problems with his boss, but that helping me with my broken down bike miles from home was precisely the tonic that he needed to lift his own spirits. When we serve one another, when we put other people ahead of ourselves, when we stay united even when it seems like there is some advantage in splitting off on our own, we not only obey God's command, we also will be blessed. Let us pray. Father God, we ask that you would seal to our hearts the truths of Scripture. We thank you for the reports of what um, the Gadites and the Reubenites were doing way back then. We thank you that you guided them to the right solution. We pray that we would uh, live in the center of your will and your way. This we pray in Jesus' name.